Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Bussman. And this week, we're going to pick up where we left off with my friend, Alex Benayan. Man, the story just keeps getting better and better. Maybe you heard the podcast we did earlier this year, shortly before the launch of his book, The Third Door. That episode was all about how he found his mission in life when he was a freshman at USC. And he realized that he was not cut out to be the doctor that his family thought he was going to be. This was a big deal in Alex's case. When Alex was a kid, his parents sent him out trick-or-treating on Halloween, dressed in scrubs. There's a good reason for it. Alex came from a family of Jewish immigrants who fled Iran shortly after the revolution in 1979. Prevailing philosophy was, your home could be taken away, your money could be taken away, but nobody could take away a doctor's knowledge. Alex couldn't concentrate on the stack of biology books at school. This was sort of a mini-life crisis. He found himself wondering about the word success. What were the most successful people in the world doing when they were his age? Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Lady Gaga, Steven Spielberg. He went to the library to find out, and when he couldn't find the information that he was looking for, he decided to write the book he wanted to read. This set him off on a seven-year journey to meet these people. I bumped into him three years into his trek after he realized he didn't know how to interview these people and sought out Larry King for advice. I have breakfast with Larry every morning, and when Larry found out Alex needed help writing his book, he pointed him to me. That makes sense. I'd been writing books and stories for Esquire magazine for years. What followed was sort of a karate kid story. I became Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off. I guided Alex for a few nights a week over four years. But this karate kid story had a twist. While I helped Alex learn to write, he was teaching me about social media and opening my mind to a new generation of thinking. He shared friendships that he developed on his journey, and soon I was in a very different place. I leaped from magazine writer and author to speaking at conferences and corporate events and starting this podcast. I'm telling you, if not for Alex, you wouldn't be hearing these words. You'll understand more about our friendship through the conversation that's coming about how Alex's book became a national bestseller and all that happened afterward. The third door got the kind of reviews that you'd expect from a bestseller. Forbes said it read like a movie and called it one of the best career books of the year. It's become one of the most listened to books on Audible. One reader said he'd listened to it 15 times. And Alex has been speaking about it in front of audiences of up to 5,000 people. It's ideal for anyone trying to find themselves in the world. And get this, it's already been included in some high school curriculums. All these highlights did not come without some very low moments. I learned a lot in this conversation that I didn't know at the time. The more you hear, the more you'll see why The Third Door is a great holiday gift It'll always be one of the great gifts in my life because it led to a beautiful friendship. Oh, and speaking of gifts and friendship, how's that for a transition? Last week, I challenged listeners of this podcast to answer the question, why is your best friend your best friend? I told everyone that I'd select some of the best responses and send the friends who were written about an amazingly soft hoodie from Sportique. 
Well, the replies started coming in, and they've all been wonderful. One of them really made me smile. Check it out. It's from a guy named Jerry writing about his friend, Fish. When I moved to Phoenix for college, I made the decision to focus on school. Even though I enjoyed beer quite a bit, I held off on drinking. At the end of my first year, a friend of mine asked if I wanted to go to a party her boyfriend was throwing. I reluctantly said yes. Apparently, all the stress and self-control met a flurry of drinking that ended with me disrobed, swimming naked in Fish's pool, and falling asleep naked in his bed. I woke up to Fish tossing me a pair of his shorts, a clean t-shirt, and saying, hey man, let's go get some breakfast. That is why Fish is my best friend. I got a feeling that Fish is gonna be getting a hoodie, and it sounds like we need to send Jerry some Sportique sweatpants, just in case he finds himself once again needing to cover those lower extremities. Both Jerry and Fish are going to be very happy because Sportique's hoodies, sweats, and comfy tees are as comfortable as you feel with your best friend. Check them out at Sportique.com. And remember, Sportique is spelled without a U. That's what makes it unique. S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E. Oh, and that reminds me, I got to get a hoodie to Alex Benayan. In the meantime... Let's get straight to my conversation with Alex, author of The Third Door. Boila! <laughs> so we're on the phone, we're talking, and I say, Alex, I want to do a podcast with you about everything that happened after your book came out. I don't know if you remember what you said, but your reply was, wow, I may need this more than the listeners. <laughs> Why? It's been a crazy year. I actually was on an airplane yesterday, and one of my favorite things to do on an airplane is I go into like the Photos app on my phone and you know, sort of skim back for a couple months. I forgot my sister got married two months ago. <laughs> and you know what's funny? Even if I told this to my sister, she wouldn't be like um, offended. She'd be like, I have forgot I got married too. And it has nothing to do with even my work. Just there's been so much change in our family lives and personal lives and work lives. You know, it's just been a, a big year. And a lot of change. Well, how long did you work on the third door? So I started when I was 18 years old. What so, year was that? Oh, wow. That was 20, I think around 2010. It's exactly because I was going back over my own emails and we met in 2013. Yeah. So that was, I guess, three years into it. And really, I think the, so I was 18 when I was a freshman in college and- for like a little context to someone who's new to our relationship is I was 18 years old and going through this life crisis, not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And I set out to go interview some of the world's most successful people. And it turned into this seven year quest and a couple, I guess two to three years into that quest, I met you and that sort of changed the whole trajectory. And that was five years ago. 
Isn't that funny that it's now actually towards the beginning of the journey? Yeah. That's when right. we met, I thought I met you at the end of my journey. <laughs> I was like, Cal, it's pretty much wrapping up right about now. So, Well, that was a funny thing. My f- first memory, and you can actually hear this in a more amplified uh, way in the first podcast that we did, because my first memory of you was you telling me, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just about done. I'm going to get <laughs> Bill Gates and Oprah Winfrey and... Uh, yeah, and in six months, I'll have everybody interviewed. You had a list of about 20 people, maybe more. And I had like five crossed off. <laughs> and I said, uh, my first advice to you was call your publisher and tell them that you need at least a year and a half longer than you originally agreed for. And I thought you were crazy. I was like, Cal, a year is pretty preposterous. <laughs> you That was probably the most liberal estimation because it didn't come out until – Five years later. So what I'd like to know is what are the sequel to the last podcast? Like what happened from the time the book was released, Mm. which was in June, correct? Yeah. Because to be honest, I haven't seen you uh, much during that time. I, you know, we were seeing each other like three times a week for years. And then you went off uh, to New York for your book launch. I'm speaking in some places, you're talking in other places. And really, this is the first time we can sit down and connect where I can find out what happened. Yeah. So what's it been like? Like, I wasn't kidding when I said on the phone, I'm just as curious to find out what happened to. I'd say even going back to the day the book came out, it came out just about six months ago in June. And... Man, even that week was... Was that the right time to launch a book? Because I question that. I'm thinking, you know what? This book, The Third Door, is a perfect graduation gift, whether it's for college or high school. It's it's just a great way to send somebody out into the world. And I'm thinking, wow, if you're putting this out in June, there may have been colleges that had their graduation ceremonies already. Was it the right time to put it out then? So I've never really talked about this publicly, but I had a very, it was a big decision. It was a really big decision. And what's funny is like everyone was like adamantly against me on this one. You wanted to do it in June. And I'll tell you why. It's actually cool now that it's been like six months since publication, I can sort of talk about like the inside baseball of like my decision-making. The big business books come out in spring and in fall. Spring, you know, you get the new year, you get graduation time. And then in the fall is like, you know, when all the big conferences are. You know, there's Summit Series, there's, you know, all those big ones. And no major business book ever, 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 ever comes out in the summer. It's just a rule in publishing, you know everyone's on, you know, everyone at the publishing house is on vacation. It's just like, it never happens. You never, you put the shit titles, you know, there's of course exceptions, but that's sort of the. Well, you know what? That's a good time to release like a great novel for summer reading. Correct. Take it to the beach. Correct. So this was my thinking. I was like, okay, everyone's giving me advice on historical data that's been correct during their whole careers. So I sort of had to question a couple assumptions. Number one was, 
have things changed in the publishing industry? You know, my agent has been doing this for decades. My, you know. And you're 25 years old at the time. I'm 25 and my. When you're making this decision. Yeah. And my publisher's been doing this for, you know, decades and decades and decades. They, you know, they've done the four hour work week. They've done lean startup. They've done Richard Branson's losing my virginity. So they know what they're doing. And, and you have no experience whatsoever. No. And that's sort of the whole story of the third door, <laughs> which is like, you know, the establishment, you know, colleges and universities say, do it this way. And then Alex says, it's not even... <laughs> It's not even that as much as it is um, just asking why. And I would say like 80 or 90% of the time, the answer is, oh, there's a really good reason why. But every now and then, I, I would say maybe 10, even 20% of the time, the answer actually isn't what everyone else is doing. And that's sort of how you find your way in. Um. If you look at the way, you know, Spielberg launched his career, the way Warren Buffett launched his career, there was always this moment where they questioned what was standard and normal and they found that way in. And the analogy for people who are sort of new to this, um, and the book is very recent, so I would imagine most people are, it's that after seven years of interviewing the world's most successful people, I realized they all treat life and business the exact same way. And, you know, the analogy, there's, you know, it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You're either born into it or you wait your turn like everybody else. But what I learned and what you know really well is there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And in some ways, even though I wasn't conscious of it, that mindset came into my, of course, decision making for when the book would come out. And, you know, the third door is not only the thesis of the book and the title of the book. It's sort of just been the way I've helped bring this book into life. And this is what I realized. Number one, how are books sold in 2018? How are business books sold in 2018? And I've spoken to, you know, 30 plus best-selling authors. I've, I literally created spreadsheets of the bestseller lists over the past three years and created graphs and charts to see which books came out at which time with how many sales numbers. Like, it was not a small decision. I spent weeks and weeks you know, creating these sales, you know, sales charts and graphs and spreadsheets. And what I realized is number one, the top way to sell books in 2018 business books are through podcasts. Now, that's been probably the biggest shift in the past few years because the way my publisher and my agents are thinking is that magazines, magazines, and magazines don't talk about business in the summer. Now, you know, Tom Bilyeu's impact theory, Cal Fussman's big questions, um, Tim Ferriss's podcast, they don't take a fucking break in the summer. <laughs> they don't. They literally don't take a break in the We're summer. You're here every week. You're here every week. And Tim Ferriss is coming at you constantly. He's coming at you every week. And all of the big authors, you know, the 
you know, my publisher was also doing Beth Comstock, who is, you know, the General Electric, General Electric, you know, her book was coming out in the fall and my publisher had Damon John, which was coming out in the spring. And I was like, look, I can sort of go toe to toe with Beth Comstock and Damon John, or I can have my book come out in the one period where everybody's on fucking vacation and I'm hitting the paint hard, you know? And it's actually not a radically new concept. So Alex. There's a book called, and I haven't read the book, but I know the concept. It's called Blue Ocean Theory, which is pretty much saying, you know, go where there's no competition. And there was no competition in the summer. And although my publisher thought it was like suicide, I actually, and I'm very grateful for, was able to be sort of the the business book on all the big business podcasts because there wasn't that much competition. And for someone as a first-time author, it was a giant help. You know, I was 25. I didn't have a giant platform like Tim Ferriss or anyone like that. Yeah, you had absolutely no platform. You didn't have a podcast. I, you, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> you, had, you had shit. <laughs> no, look, basically the point is, the is truth, that this, this is what you had to surmount. So let's talk about how did you do it? How did you... Like, it was easy for, I don't even think you had to ask me. It was me thinking, wow, I'd like to have Alex on the podcast. This is a great story. I knew the story. I knew it was going to be great. Anybody could listen to it in the first podcast. But how did you convince all the other podcasts to have you on? Because there's no real history, although you did manage to be on the 30 under 30 list. So that gave you some credibility. Yeah, I would say the biggest thing, um, you know, what's really cool about the third door is that even though in theory, you know, technically I'm the author I, and I feel this, I'm not like just saying it for the sake of saying, I really do feel this. I'm the first reader of the book. I felt like I was a guinea pig, like a, I was the test case to see if the ideas in the book work. And I pretty much used the lessons in the book to launch the book. And for example, for example, there's the Spielberg story with the inside man. And I don't know if you want me to go into yeah, it. Yeah, just give a little, an abbreviated version. So this is how Steven Spielberg launched his career. He, you know, similar to me, you know, 18 years old, no credibility, you know, no hits, but had a really big dream. And obviously I'm not similar to Spielberg in the sense that Spielberg, Spielberg, but we were both starting out with nothing. And this applies to anybody who's trying to launch a dream. And Spielberg applied to film school, didn't get in. So he decided he would sort of take his education into his own hands. And he goes onto a tour bus at Universal Studios Hollywood, where they have this tram ride that takes you into the back lot. And Spielberg rides on this tram, jumps off, hides in a bathroom, waits for the tram to drive away. And he starts walking around on the lot. And he's walking around for an hour and he bumps into this older gentleman named Chuck Silvers. And Chuck Silvers was the head of the Universal Television Library. And he asked Spielberg, you know, what are you doing here? And Spielberg told him the truth. You know, I'm 19 years old. It's my dream to be a director. I jumped off the tram and they end up actually talking for an hour. And at the end, Chuck Silvers goes, how would you like to come back on the lot? Spielberg goes, you know, that would be a dream. And Chuck Silvers wrote him a three-day pass. And Spielberg came the first day and the second day and the third day. And on the fourth day, he actually came dressed in a suit, 
carrying his dad's briefcase. And he walked right up to the gate, threw an arm up in the air to the security guard and yelled, hey, Scotty. And the guard just waved back and Spielberg walked right through. And he did this for months. He would go into editing bays. He would go onto sound stages, soaking up as much knowledge as he could, asking directors and actresses and actors out to lunch. And after a few months, Chuck Silvers sort of became his mentor. And he said, look, you got to stop schmoozing and you got to go find and make a short film of value to show. And Spielberg took the advice and spent months creating this short film called Amblin. He went back and showed it to Chuck Silvers, and it was so good, a single teardrop came down his face. And Chuck Silvers reached for the phone and called the vice president of Universal Television, Sid Scheinberg, and was like, Sid, I, I got something you gotta see. And Sid Scheinberg's like, look, there's a lot of things I gotta see. And Chuck Silvers goes, no, this is that goddamn important. If you don't watch this, somebody else will. And because of that, the vice president watched it and the next morning asked to see Spielberg immediately. Spielberg rushed over. He was, I think, like a junior in college. Rushes over to Universal, corner office, and on the table is a contract making him the youngest director in Hollywood history. And the lesson I took from that is, you know, of course Spielberg had tremendous talent, but so do other aspiring directors. What made this work for Spielberg when it didn't work for so many other people? And to me... It was Chuck Silvers. It was that inside man, someone inside of the organization who believes in you enough that they're willing to put their reputation on the line to help you get in. And it doesn't matter if we're looking at Spielberg's career or Warren Buffett's career or Lady Gaga's career. Every single time there was someone credible, close inside of the organization who put their reputation on the line for you. And I can tell you, you know, back to the question of how I booked these big podcast when I was essentially, you know, had zero platform and I was unknown, every single time there was an inside man, inside woman who believed in this book and believed in this mission so much, they put their entire reputation on the line vouching for me. And I couldn't be more grateful for every single one of them. So they were able to connect you with podcasters? Every single one. So, And the thing about it is, Podcasters need to fill up their schedule. If they're coming out once a week, you need to be booking a guest right. every week. But their challenge is when they're getting pitched, you know, they get 100 pitches a day. How do they, first of all, how do they find which one's the good one? How do they find someone that they trust and that is going to be a good guest? It's because someone else that they really trust said, I'm putting my entire reputation on the line for this recommendation. So you had people reach out to podcasters and let them know, hey, you should check out Alex. He's got this book coming out. It's called The Third Door. He's going to be a great guest. Yeah, what's it's actually sort of crazy that the way I started The Third Door getting the interviews was with cold outreach and you know chasing Larry King through a grocery store and stuff. Um, but by the time the book was ready to come out, I didn't actually make a single cold email the entire way through. Because you had enough inside men yeah, but that's at that's that the point, benefit of of se spending seven years preparing. So that's the first thing in the preparatory process of making sure you're out on the podcast. You're not worried about book reviews the way 20 years before. That would have been the most crucial thing to getting the word out. 
Look, I would love if the New York Times wrote a book review, but it's such a... This is the thing that you have to understand about the landscape in 2018. Um, The book review would be great. I definitely would want it. But my question was, I had a limited amount of time. Not only just because I was on the deadline for the book was coming out June 5th and I couldn't push it. uh, I also had a limited amount of energy. Although I was giving 100% of myself, the 100% of myself that I had in the beginning of this year was not the same as the 100% of myself I had years ago. Um, You know, better than most people, my dad passed away last year. And the one year anniversary of his death was in April. You know, a couple months before the book came out. And just the fact that the one year was coming up, it, it was really hard. And then my, both my dad's parents were alive as my dad passed away. And my dad's two parents became critically sick too in the beginning of this year. So between the family stuff, my mom was going through a really hard time. I had to be really thoughtful about how I'm going to use my time and my energy because to me, you know, of course, family comes first, but if if there was anything in my work life, in my career, in my mission that I cared about more than anything else on earth, it's the book. There wasn't even a second option. I, there wasn't even a close second place. And I wanted to give 100% of myself to it. I just, there would be some days where I'd be just like in my bed, unable to get out of bed. So I wasn't chasing the New York Times. I was like, all right, what's going to be the one thing that actually helps get the word of the third door out to the people who actually want to hear it. And in theory, the Today Show talks to a lot of people, but it's just a mass audience. Are they the people that would pick up the book? The people listening to Big Questions with Cal Fussman are curious, are proactive in their life. And that's actually a huge thing too. If you're going to the podcast section, downloading a podcast, listening to it, and your commute on the subway while you're at the gym, it's because you actually give a shit about making your life better. Yeah. And it's- It's been proven and congr- again and again. Yeah, congratulations. Again. The third door is a book for people who want to make their lives better. So <laughs> it actually makes more sense for me to be on Big Questions than on the Today Show. But to my publisher, that doesn't make sense. Now, we also, of course, did all the big stuff with, you know, Time and CNBC and MSNBC and all that stuff, but the podcasts make the biggest difference by far. So you start with the podcasts, and now the launch is approaching, and one of my favorite visuals (laughs) is you on Times Square with a sign that is like the size of a building with the third door on it. Yeah, the Times Square billboard. Times Square billboard. And you are with your mom in front of that sign celebrating. How did you pull that off? I mean, if we, we got to post a picture, of the, a picture of the picture because when you see the size of this advertisement, it's the size of a building. Yeah. How did you do it? Um, again, it was another inside man. Um, his name is 
Matt Mickelson. And anybody who's read the book actually knows Matt Mickelson. Lady Gaga chapter. He, Matt Mickelson was the inside man who helped me get to Lady Gaga. And Matt has been, you know, extremely generous and a huge mentor. And I'm so grateful for him. And if there's one thing this book and this book launch prove is that life is not only a lot more fulfilling, but you also get your dreams accomplished much more effectively when other people come to help. And other people love to help because it's a thrill to help. It's great seeing somebody you've helped succeed. Mm. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's a very different feeling from succeeding yourself. Mm. In what way? I, I just said it's almost hard yeah. to describe, but you're able to look at it. You know what? I can't explain it. There's a quote from Picasso. He can explain it. I guess he was asked the meaning of life. And he said, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of your life is to give that gift away. Mm. And so that's the two mm. stages. It's finding your gift and being successful, but then giving your gift away and watching other people use it. It's, there's a Jackie Robinson quote uh, that says something along the same lines about the impact that you have being measured by the impact you have on other lives. Mm. You can think that I need to do this in order to be successful, but when you see many other people being successful because of the impact that you've had, it becomes exponential. Yeah, it's it's weird because I, when you were talking about the Times Square, I don't know if you saw, but I was getting teary-eyed when you were talking about the Times Square thing. Um, and I don't think you and I have really talked about this much, but the day before I I live in LA. I left LA to go to New York for the book launch. I was at my grandpa's bedside, my dad's dad, sort of saying goodbye. And um, he had cancer and was sort of in his final days. And I didn't know, look, a book launch is hard in and of itself, especially when it's a book launch from a book that you've been pouring seven years of your life into. Um, and I think I'll maybe in 20 years have some more clarity on that week, but that was a very um, emotional week. And the day after the book came out, you know, I was in New, I was supposed to be in New York the whole week to do press and media. The second day after the book launch, I woke up after, so now I guess this is the third morning I wake up at, you know, 6 a.m. and I see there's like four missed calls for my sister, three missed calls for my cousin. So you know what happened. Yeah, it's one of those things you don't have to, when you see six or eight missed calls at six o'clock in the morning, you know what happened. And 
I remember calling my sister Brianna and, you know, she confirmed that my grandpa passed away and I actually remember going in the shower and I'm just like sobbing in the shower and there's this song from Mike Posner that talks about, um, it's called Buried in Detroit and it goes, it's pretty much about being buried where your father and your grandfather are buried. And I think my grandpa dying, especially because it was my dad's dad, it just felt very different. Well, it puts you in the position of being the man of the family in a way. Yeah, there's something. Yeah, and I would imagine for a, for a girl, you know, a mother and her mother. There's like almost like this lineage. And yeah, of course I, you know, canceled everything in New York, got on the first flight back to LA and, you know, carried my grandpa's casket at the funeral. And it's all been, I guess this is sort of what I was joking with you on the phone the other day of saying like, I don't even know what happened the past six months. And there's just been like such a, like a crazy stew of blessings and heartbreak and joy and grief. And it was almost as if, you know, life, God, the universe, like, you know, whatever you believe in, wanted to show me what life is about. And as if, you know, I didn't get the message clear enough you know, you know, my grandpa has his, you know, we have my grandpa's funeral and, you know, again, there's been, you know, years worth of preparation for the month of June, my publisher and everyone is, you know, the whole month of June has been planned out. So eventually it's, and also, it's also what people have to understand is this isn't just my job. This has been my biggest life's dream. Well, it is. It has been your life. It's like it's, all you've been. It's all I've worked about on for the for past seven years. Correct. And so this isn't just like a book launch for like a book I spent a couple months working. You know, this is. I've been you know dreaming of this, so it didn't feel like oh I have to go back on. No, this was my you know this was my baby. Um, well, it's interesting you use that term because it comes down to grandfather baby. So it actually did feel very familial. Um, I didn't feel like I was going back on the road for work. It felt like I was taking care of another part of my family, another part of the thing that brings deep, deep fulfillment. Obviously, you know, my real family comes first, but the third door is more than just a, a book for me. And literally the first week I go back. So, you know, that first week I'm with my family in LA. And then the second week, I go back on the road. Um, it should be pointed out that that week is a crucial week because Shiva and- what, in, in both ways. 
and for right, your family, for, and, for, right. and for the book. I mean, you're depending on that first week's sales to see if you're going to get on a bestseller list. Correct. And Correct. everything, oh, all, the, all the you're publicity. Like putting in, you're putting me in like PTSD right now. <laughs> all the publicity has been set up for this first week to right. get you the numbers, to get on the list so that people will see it. And then it will promulgate more sales. And in the oh, middle of God. this, in the middle of this, you're flying back to LA and you're watching your I forgot even about the whole bestseller <laughs> list stuff. That was because now six months removed, it's not, you know, the end all be all. But I, no, in that week it was. And it was almost as if, you know, my grandpa's death was God's way of slapping me and reminding me that a bestseller list is not what life's about. Um, it's your family. It's your family. And and it's the people who you love. Um, Friends of the family we choose. Exactly. And, and so you're kind of caught between this longing to take can I, can care I tell of your you family. Yeah. I didn't feel caught at all. You didn't? No. And actually, I I would have caught is the logical word to describe it. Right. This, But the second you said it out loud. It didn't um, feel like that. It didn't feel like that. Me and my therapist do this sometimes. Sometimes she, you know, tries to summarize what I went through and I correct her to help me, no, to help me better understand how I feel because it's hard for me to put it into words. So you didn't feel caught? No. I felt like I was doing exactly the right thing. I came back from my grandpa's funeral. I was there. Did you come back charged up to, because a lot of people, when they get in those situations, they can take all their energy and focus it on the here and the now and put everything else aside. But I'm looking at your face and it's clear you're not one of those people. No, I felt it very deeply. Um, I don't know, how can you I don't I don't know how other people do there it. There are people who can do that. I'm not I'm not gonna comprem yeah, I don't there are, there I are. don't compartmentalize I integrate in some ways. I'll actually invite in Yeah, I don't know another way to do it. Okay. So you come back to the tour and what's right. your mindset at that point? Well, we're finding out oh my god, I remember this so vividly. We're oh god. I remember the first, oh, wow, it's all coming back to me now. It's sort of like a flood of memories. So now it's week two. You know, week one just passed. It's now week two. And the way the bestseller list works is you find out about the following, about the prior week. Every week is actually a sales report of the prior week. Correct. Because, of course, you have to count the sales of that week. So, oh. Wow, I'm forgetting about this. I go to, because the press tour is still planned out. I go to Chicago. The first thing I do right off the heels of my grandpa's funeral is I fly to Chicago and do like six live television interviews all over the city of Chicago, starting at four o'clock in the morning. And this is set up <laughs> set up by your publisher now? Uh, or? No, this was through an outside okay. uh, person I was working with. And- do you know what's so good is that I'm actually remembering this. I, I was afraid, you know, you talked about like compartmentalizing and being charged up. and No, I actually, there's just something about when you pour your heart into a project. I didn't have to compartmentalize. It wasn't like I was going into a corporate board meeting and I was like, all right, don't think about death. 
No, the third door is literally everything I've poured my heart into. So actually in a weird way, in hindsight, I can see that I was just more myself. Um, wow. So I did this whole, wow, Chicago is really intense. It was pretty much 48 hours of, and I'd never done, I've done a lot of TV interviews. You know, I did the thing with Larry King, with, you know, your podcast, but Live TV was a new thing for me, especially when it's back to back to back. You're jumping to different studios. You're going to ABC. You're going to WNYC. You're going to WGN. You're like, you know, you're jumping all around. And it sort of feels like a high wire act. What is it? What is it called? Uh, walk in the wire. Right. Walk on the wire. Tight wire. Yeah, right, tight because, rope walker. Right. Because you really, they're not going to edit. It's going live. So you're, every word has to be just dialed, which actually was very fun for me. Um, I really enjoyed it. And then I did get the news that the book became a national bestseller, um, which was a really, it was a really beautiful moment. Um, and then sure enough, a couple of days after, I find out that my grandma, my dad's mom, got a stroke. Now she was in the ICU. Um, so again, I fly back to LA and I ended up spending a lot of time with my grandma in the ICU and exactly 30 days after my grandpa passed away, my grandma passed away. And so at that point, can you take a little gas off the book and spend time with your family or how, you know, I use the word caught and maybe it's a bad word, but still you got to be thinking, okay, am I going to be with my mom and my sisters or am I going to be on the road speaking about the book? There's like a couple things that I try to live my life by. And I don't really believe in like, you know, some people are like, I live my life by these rules. I don't really believe in rules. But, like, they're almost like guiding principles. I don't like being strict in life. It's it's not fun. Um, but I have some – I'm, like, the opposite of Jocko. I know people love Jocko. He's very inspiring. But I'm, like, you know, sleep in a little. <laughs> <laughs> Jocko's up at 4 in the morning, man, and he's taking a picture of his watch. So I, everybody look, know it. I, res- I respect it a ton. Um you know, to each, to each their own. And it's working out really well for him. But for me, I just believe in a couple things. One is that, you know, there's this principle in Buddhism called matri, which is loving kindness with oneself. And the idea is that you should treat yourself the way you would treat your best friend. And I it's actually a really good way to think about things when you don't know what to do. You ask yourself, my best friend was coming to me with this problem. If my best friend was telling me that my grandpa just passed away and now my grandma just passed away, what would I tell that best friend to do? How would I help that best friend? I would probably tell him to go into bed. I would order him some Postmates. I, you know, I would sit with him, let him cry and say, you know, the work will still be there tomorrow. Um, 
And there's also this thing that I heard Jeff Bezos say years ago that has stayed with me forever. And it's called the, he calls it like the regret minimization framework. And pretty much the idea is that, and it's pretty, it's a great way to make really hard decisions. You know, you use the word caught. If you ever feel caught, you can sort of run your dilemma through this way of thinking and you actually get an answer really quickly. And the idea is, you know, imagine yourself at 90 years old. Let's take my situation, for example, right? My grandma's my grandma's in the ICU. She hasn't passed away yet, uh, but she is in the ICU. The question is, do I go on the road back to New York or do I stay with her in LA? That's my question for the day. And the Jeff Bezos regret minimization framework says, imagine yourself at 90 years old. And ask your 90-year-old self, you know, close your eyes, imagine yourself in a rocking chair. Ask your 90-year-old self, do you regret going back to New York when grandma was in ICU? Reverse engineer your life. And if that 90-year-old says, yes, I regret it, you know your decision. And I know my 90-year-old self would have said, yes, I regret it. So I stayed in LA with my grandma and I'm very grateful I did. Now, at, at what point, and I, I know you've been speaking a lot, to, or does the speaking start to pick up? Because I guess you go from oh, yeah. the publicity to people hearing the publicity to people saying, hey, come speak at our event. Yeah, it picked up rap faster than anything else has picked up in my life, um, which literally I thank God for it every day because I'm, number one, it's just... Again, I, I keep saying this over and over again. The third door is my baby. So being able to share it with people, especially in person, it's a huge, huge honor. And it's also one of my favorite things to do. I I love, I know a lot of authors who speak because it's like sort of part of the job, but they sort of hate it. They hate the travel. They hate being on stage. Yeah, if you had a choice between speaking and writing, I think you would- Speaking, yeah. Yeah, yeah with, speaking. without a doubt. Yeah, there's no no question. Um. I've grown to love writing because of you and what you taught me. Um, but it's sort of like my, you know. If you have a choice, if, go, if, up, if, go up on stage and speak right, if, or sit down in Right, room if God and, was like, I take your vocal cord or I take your hand, I would say, oh God, I didn't want to go into that. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to stop that right there. <laughs> would, but. Yeah, I stopped it for myself. But yes, yeah, speaking, definitely speaking. So now basically everything that you love to do is being put in front of you. You love being on the stage. You love talking to people. You love helping people. And now you're getting a chance to do that. And the cool thing about speaking is the third door. The thing, you know, each thing is cool. You know, the book has a way to scale. There's no way, you know, tens of thousands of people have already read the third door. You know, if you had the Staples Center and I like to think of things in this way. It's like I look at my sales numbers. I'm like, wow. There would The Staples Center would be completely filled with readers of the third door with a line going outside of people who have already read it. And that's really fucking cool. Um, and what's cool is that with Audible, people can keep listening to it. I got a message yesterday on Instagram of a reader saying that he's listened to the Audible 15 times. <laughs> I haven't even listened to it 15 times. Um, oh my, can I tell you the best thing actually? Um, 
I was in Chicago yesterday for a book tour event. And what's cool is that, you know, the book tour in the first month, I was introducing the book to readers. But now that it's on the sixth month, there's people at the events who have read the book. So now when they come up to you afterward for an autograph, they've got an opinion. They've got something. And they're showing me the book that they've been reading, you know, with highlights and ripped pages and bookmarks. I love this. You know, some of them, you know, there's like a wine stay. You know, it's actually their book. It's not my book. It's their book. Well, it's their book the moment they buy it. It's personal. Yeah. Right? They wrote little notes. That's the biggest misconception that authors have. They never understand or... I shouldn't say they never. It's a generalization, but but most don't. Yeah. Young, especially your first book, you think that it's yours, no, no, and no, you no. don't realize yeah. that when somebody buys it, it's theirs. It's theirs. You just so happen to be the person who helped put it together, but it's for them. There's a great quote that says, "A book without a reader is just sheets of paper with ink on it." That's the point. That is the point. Yeah. That is the point. And so I'm at this book tour event in Chicago yesterday. And this woman came up to me. She was relatively young. I think she was like about 30 years old. And she came up and, you know, she couldn't have been more kind. So I did a one-hour keynote at a really great corporation in Chicago. And then they had this big book signing. And this woman comes up with, you know, her own personal copy of the book. Um, which always makes me very happy. I always ask to see it. I like like to flip through and see like what they highlighted. It like makes me very happy. And she told me something that made me tear up as she was standing there. She said that she has a two-year-old daughter. And that not only did she did this mother read the third door on her own, you know, months ago just for her own, you know, career purposes. But this past month, she's her daughter's been having trouble going to sleep, and she's been reading the third door <laughs> to her daughter every night for the past month. And I don't even know if two-year-olds know how to talk yet. I think they know a few words. <laughs> um, I love this. And I don't even fully know why it made me so emotional. Um, but I just, not only did I tear up as she was telling it to me when I was on the plane back from Chicago, I was thinking back on it and again, I teared up and I guess it it might go back to something you said earlier about like, you know, the baby and the intergenerational. Yeah. This is what's really happened. I mean, you're kind of, I, I see your eyes as you're talking. It's like, you're looking inside yourself to try and figure out what happened. Yeah, I'm still figuring it out. And it's like you're letting these things out and they're kind of winding up on the desk between us, but it's kind of easy for me to see the whole passage of time and generations putting things in and then as time goes, they leave and the things that get passed on need to be passed on to the next generation, which probably made that moment so gratifying to you. Yeah. As sort of, you, you don't uh, have a child yet, but the moment you see your child reading that book, I'm oh sure it's going to juice you up. My sisters love to remind me that I'm going to have the hardest time parenting because my kid will be like, I'll be like, don't do that. And they're like, 
the third door, Dad. The third door. And I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> it's not how it works. <laughs> I'm not going to kindergarten. The third door. I'm like, no, that's not how it works. But my sisters like to remind me that I've created the worst parenting trap for myself of all time. Oh, man. Well, at the at the end of the year, it's only six months after the book's been released, uh, but we're heading into a new year. And you know what? Uh, because of you and your friendship with Kevin, the manager, I've got a new sponsor coming on. Uh, you know him. Uh, or you know the company as well. Uh, it's called My Intent. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you all introduced me to Chris Pan. And My Intent is a very special kind of bracelet. Mm-hmm. I have a few of them. You got a few. Yeah. Uh, because the beauty of this bracelet is it really helps you to think about your life, where you're at, and where you want to go. And you're able to distill those thoughts to maybe a single word mm. and put it on this token-like bracelet so that... It's almost like a little medallion. Uh, and it... It serves as a mantra for you. Yeah. And, you know, mantras have proven to be successful <laughs> over centuries. But the idea is you wake up in the morning and there's the bracelet and there's the word. And it makes you, it reminds you, yeah, that's where I'm going. It's like having a North Star constantly in front of you to make sure you're going in the right direction. And so my question to you is New Year's starting You've just went through this amazing process. I know you're going to be continuing to speak. Your book's going to be coming out in a lot of different languages. We just, I haven't told you this one yet. We just got the 12th language yesterday. What's that one? Arabic. Fantastic. Where's it going to be published? Everywhere uh, Arabic is spoken. So, you know, you got a lot of countries actually with Arabic, Spanish, Arabic, those are the country, those are the languages that really spread. Um, but I'm very, that's probably my, one of the things I'm most excited about. Is going out to these different countries to speak about the book. Yeah. The world tour next year is going to be really exciting. The world tour. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you're coming, you're coming to Brazil. If I, okay. Well, we, we talked do, about do that. Do people know about Gloria? Uh, I think, well, some people definitely know that you, because it's in your, even on your bio on your website, that you met your wife traveling in Brazil. On the way to the most beautiful beach in the world, Jericoacoara. Well, maybe we should do a book signing there (laughs) on the sand with three people. (laughs) I think that's worth it. Well, I'm happy to meet you in Brazil. I'm sure Gloria is going to be happy to come along as will so many other family members. So what would you think as you're getting ready for this next year is the word that you would put on your My Intent bracelet to give yourself a sense of focus, your North Star for 2019? Hmm. You know, I've actually been, I think it's pretty natural to be thinking about, you know, what's next. As much as I try to not think about it, it's just a natural Thing that sort of pops into your head. And what I realized is that, and actually have, I've gotten more insight into the book now that it's done. 
There's a great quote by Maya Angelou that says, um, you don't know where you're going until you know where you've been. And looking into next year has actually made me reflect more on this year. And I realize, and you and I have talked about this a bit, which is that when I had started, you know, the third door seven years ago, I wanted it to be, you know, the most practical, wisdom-packed book in the world. And, you know, I wanted it to be pretty much 300 pages of bullet points and tactics and, you know, all those hacks. And, you know, while in many ways that essence is still there, you know, in the book is Tim Ferriss' cold email template, Bill Gates' negotiating secrets. It's still there. You know, I, you know, I've talked about this a lot. You know, the soul of the book goes much, much, much deeper. And it's really about possibility. And if there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's that you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. And there's this story that I came across somewhere in my research. I don't even remember where I read it, but I read this story somewhere about this teacher who was teaching for Teach for America. And, you know, she was assigned to a really rough neighborhood in a really tough school, I think, you know, somewhere in Baltimore to, I think, maybe third or fourth grade. And she realized, you know, these kids really need some inspiration. So one day she, you know, passes us sheets of paper and crayons and she says, today, instead of our math lesson, we're all going to draw pictures of our biggest dream in life. You know, what you want to be when you grow up, your biggest dream. And, you know, all the kids start coloring, except there's this one boy sitting in the back who won't pick up a crayon. And, you know, the teacher is looking at him and 30 minutes goes by and his face is just stoic. And finally, his eyes light up and he reaches for a crayon and he starts coloring. And, you know, the, all the kids pass in their papers. They go home. The teacher's going through them. And she sees that that young boy drew a picture of a pizza delivery man. And the teacher was very concerned, so she called the mother that night. The mother, though, said that she wasn't surprised. The mother said that the only male figure in his life who was in in jail or on drugs is his uncle who delivers pizza. And what that story taught me is that young people will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. They will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. So it's our job, whether it's schools or families or people in the media at large, to illuminate more branches. And that's really my mission moving forward. So if I had to make that my intent bracelet, it would be very simple. It would be illuminate branches. You got that, Chris Pan? <laughs> okay, Alex, coming your way, one my intent bracelet. Thank you, man. Illuminate branches. Thank you very much, man. It's just beautiful to see you. And, uh, you know, I never really brought this up, but I, I purposely created some distance, uh, even though some of it was purposeful. Uh, another part of it was I was out speaking and traveling myself. Uh, but 
since you know we worked for so many years on the book, hmm. uh, and as anyone who listens to the first episode will know, I said at the very start, I'll help you with this, but I'm not writing a single word. You're going to have to write every word of the book. And I wanted to make sure that when you went out to publicize it, that everybody understood that you wrote every word of that book. And so... But look, you helped more than I can say. I I was with you. Yeah. And we had a great journey, but... It's your book, completely, every single word, everything between the lines. It's your book, and I wanted everybody to know that. Uh, but now listening to you, uh, I I got to say, I wish that I had known uh, at a greater level what you're going through. I don't know how I could have helped. And sometimes in some of the situations you're in, you go through life alone. There's really nothing anybody can do when you're uh, surrounded by some of the scenarios that you're in. But looking back, maybe I should have figured out a way to to be with you a little more. And going forward, I'll definitely make an attempt to do that because I find... It's strange to be talking with you six months later and finding out things and feelings that you had that I didn't know about. Uh, I knew some of it, but I'm really glad we had this talk. And it's been one of the great moments in my life when I think of the moment that I met you and saw that young, naive guy <laughs> coming in with all these pronouncements and having no idea where it was going. And you took me on a beautiful journey. This microphone wouldn't be in front of me. Uh, I wouldn't be speaking. Uh, all the things that you naturally did well, you opened the door for me. Mm. Uh, so I really didn't need a third door because you were that third mm. door for me. And I say thank you as we start this new year in our new adventures. And I just uh, wish you every good thing going forward. And with so much love. I love you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Really, thank you. That about wraps it up. As always, want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. Also want to thank all the listeners who wrote in the reasons their best friends are their best friends. It's been wonderful reading them. Contest is still going as I speak these words, but next week on Christmas Day, I'll give a shout out to the best friends who are going to get those Sportique hoodies. Also, want to tell you a little more about those My Intent bracelets. They are a particularly great gift during this time of year as we prepare to make New Year's resolutions. It takes some time to think about the one word you'd like to inspire you. You got to ask yourself some questions about where you've been and where you want to go. That alone is a great exercise. When you dig deep and discover your direction and then distill down to a single word what it's going to take to get to your destination, it's like finding your North Star. 
Having that word chiseled into your bracelet always reminds you to focus on what's important. That focus can lead to some great moments. You can learn more about My Intent bracelets on myintent.org. That's M-Y-I-N-T-E-N-T dot org. When you go, you'll see photos of Beyonce, Conan, O'Brien, and many others wearing their bracelets. And if you go to myintent.org slash cal, you'll see me wearing the bracelet a couple of years ago when I was 25 pounds heavier. Proof that resolutions come true through the word focus. I'm as fit as I've been in years, and now I'm asking myself questions about my word for 2019. As soon as I've decided, I'll let you know. See you next week. Cheers!